If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Job, the book of Job, chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning. Uh, just as you're turning there, I'll kind of get you caught up to where we are. Job chapters 1 and 2 uh, is the narrative of the book that sort of introduces us uh, to who Job is. And we know that Job is uh, a servant of God, one of the most, uh, I think probably one of the highest titles that you could get from God uh, in the Old Testament. Job is God's servant. We know that also he was uh, very beloved by God. He was a righteous man, um, yet uh, suffering befalls him. Uh, We get a glimpse into the heavenly courtroom where uh, Satan approaches God uh, and asks uh, God to uh, allow him uh, to basically destroy Job's life. Uh, And thereafter, uh, every one of Job's possessions is taken from him. Um, All of his sons and daughters are taken from him. uh, And all he's left with is his wife. Um, and we'll, we'll find out more about part of Job's calamity and just the distress of his life here in chapter 19. So, so please do uh, read along with me here in Job chapter 19, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me into pieces with your words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains within myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence but I'm not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and He has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. And my hope is He pulled up like a tree. He has kindled His wrath Against me and counsel me as his adversary. His troops come on together and they have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He's put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me, my close friends have forgotten me, the guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become as a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise... They talk against me. All the intimate friends, all my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you? 
like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and a lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has become thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say, how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him, be afraid of the sword, for the wrath for wrath brings punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are good and that you are your steadfast love endures forever. We pray now, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would indeed uh, do a work in our hearts, that we would not only hear your word, but Lord, that we would receive it uh, down deep. Uh, within. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So there's basically two ways to fly an airplane. Uh, The first way that you can fly an airplane is is flying it by sight. It's what they call flying VFR. You're flying by your visual. Uh, And this, uh, you're usually, when you're flying VFR, you're flying it at at a lower altitude, maybe for a shorter distance. If you wanted to go up in a small airplane and fly around Charlotte or fly around uh, somewhere close, uh, you would be flying VFR most likely. You would be using landmarks under you and so on and so forth to, to tell you where you are. You would be you know, relying on yourself uh, to just fly the airplane. You would be using uh, kind of common sense, a little bit of the instruments, but you would be using your eyes, your senses to fly the airplane. There's another way of flying the airplane and uh, it's called flying IFR, flying from your instruments, right? You're, you're looking at the instruments, at the, the altimeter and, and the, uh, all the other uh, instruments in the cockpit to tell you what you're doing, to tell you what the airplane's doing, using your GPS and so on and so forth uh, to guide you, to tell you where you need to go and how you need to correct for wind and so on and so forth. If you're flying in a jet, right, if you're flying at high altitudes for long distances, uh, you're flying IFR, you're using your instruments. And this is a, a special kind of uh, thing that, that requires uh, certification, special certification to fly the airplane this way. But when you're flying IFR, um, you rely on your instruments to tell you which, which way the airplane is rolling or if you're, if you're gaining altitude or if you're decreasing in altitude. Uh, when you're flying IFR, your visibility is usually poor, which is why you can go to the airport and get on an airplane. And as long as the weather's not too bad, you can take off in the rain and the fog and so on and so forth and, and just go. Because the instruments are telling you what the airplane is doing. However, when you fly IFR, your instruments are really the only thing that stands between you and death. You have to trust your instruments. And so when we come to to Job chapter 19, I think we get a, a good picture of what flying through life, kind of IFR, looks like. 
In Job 19, Job, Job is alone. That's obvious from the text. He, he looks around him and every person, everyone that he had ever known, everyone that had been close to him is, is, is away. Right? He's got these three guys here that used to be his best friends that are now just railing on him. Uh, so they're not really there for him either. Everyone else is gone. He feels like God is gone. He feels like he's become God's enemy. But even in, in that just terrible moment, of distress. Job teaches us something, and he teaches us that, that even when it looks like God is against me according to my circumstances, even when it looks like God is against me according to my circumstances, he is a loving friend whose work of redemption proves and assures and confirms that he is for me and not against me no matter what. In other words, no matter what happens in this life, no matter how bad or how painful things get, we can have a trust in God that transcends any kind of trauma that we may experience. And so as we pick up at the beginning of chapter 19, we remember that, that, that Job has lost everything. 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 At the end of chapter 2, um, Job has lost everything, and, and things are looking good for him and his friends at the end of chapter 2, right? At the end of chapter 2, his three friends, they just come, they sit down beside him, they don't say a word, and they just be with him. They're in his presence. They're just there for him for seven days and seven nights. But after chapter 2, things take a turn for the worse with Job and his friends. Chapters 4 through 18, and actually thereafter, all the way up until God begins to speak, there's just this constant interchange between Job and his friends, and they're not all that helpful. His, free, his three friends just begin pretty much a cycle of just railing on him, telling, telling him why they think that he is suffering, and their reason, okay, what they think, the reason they think that Job has experienced what I call terrible providence is because, Job, you wouldn't be experiencing this if you had not sinned. In other words, you must have sinned in order to cause these calamities to come on your life. Job's friend is saying, you've done something against God. You've sinned against Him. In other words, from their perspective, bad behavior equals bad providence. Job, you've done something. And if you would just repent... All of it would be over. And that's what his friends go on to say. Eliphaz uh, begins in chapter 5, uh, verses 17 to 27. He basically tells Job that he must go to God and repent. And all this will go away. Right? Your suffering will stop. Everything will go away. And Job responds. He says, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong to repent of. Bildad in chapter 8, verse 20 tells Job, he said, Behold, God will not reject a blameless man or take the hand of evildoers. In other words, he's saying, Job, you must be evil. Right? The reason why God has rejected you is because you are an evil man. And Zophar, in chapter 11, verse 14, just kind of giving you a survey of, of what they've said to him thus far, he says, If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. And let not injustice dwell in your tents. And then he goes on to say how greatly Job will be blessed if he would just ask forgiveness for whatever he's done. 
again, but this implies that, that Job's sin has caused his suffering. Job's friends are con- convinced, without a doubt, that Job would not be experiencing suffering if he had not sinned. All suffering, in their minds, is related to sin. All of it. Now, we know from other parts of the Bible, particularly from the New Testament, Jesus refutes that claim. But in their minds, in his friends' minds, the reason why Job is where he is is because he's committed some heinous, some grievous sin against God. And Job's response every time is, I haven't done anything wrong like you said I have. In other words, my sin did not cause my suffering. That's Job's reply. And so when we come to chapter 19 and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have been just taken round upon round upon Job and they will continue to do so for a number of, uh, a number of more chapters, Job is exhausted. He is emotionally exhausted from their round after round of, of pounding on him with their words. And so he says in chapter 19 verse 2, How long will you torment me? And break me in pieces with your words. In other words, how, how long are you going to continue to not believe what I'm telling you? Right? How long are you going to continue to not believe what I'm telling you? But also, how long are you going to continue to attack me for that? Right? Attack me and break me in pieces with your words. Saying that, you know, that I've sinned. And this, this constant sort of verbal bludgeoning has pretty much just brought him to the end of himself. It's broken him in pieces. And don't don't forget, Job also is covered with loathsome sores from head to toe. He physically is in agony, terrible pain constantly. And don't forget the, the wreck, his, his emotional wreckage with all of his children having been taken from him and everything that he's worked for for his whole life having been taken from him as well. So, so Job is at the end of himself. He continues on in verse 3. He says, These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? In other words, does it not bring you shame to kick me and kick me and kick me while I'm down? While I'm already in such pain? Do you not feel shame for for, for bludgeoning me with your words while I'm already so near death? Verse 4, and even even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. In other words, he's saying, even if it was my sin that has caused this, how how is it any of your business, right? Why do you need to keep kicking me? And finally, in verses 5 to 6, Job tells them that, if they want to use his disgrace, right, his, his failure, his uh, season of suffering as an occasion to, to, to mount their high horse and down-talk him, as, as an occasion to, to magnify themselves, then they should know that, that it kind of takes a turn. God is the one who's put him there. In other words, take, your, take it up with him. And so we can hear in Job's voice and in the pleading of his words that, that he's telling his friends, you are worsening my suffering. You are not helping at all. You are making things worse. 
You're not listening to me. You keep kicking me. You're not believing me. All of that is killing me even faster than, than all the other problems that I have without you being on my case. And so what we learn, what becomes pretty obvious pretty immediately, is that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are some pretty miserable friends to have around. Right? Their refusal to believe Job, their refusal to, to love hopes all things for Job, their refusal um, to believe that he hasn't sinned, and their, their, their insistence that, that he must have sinned is mentally exhausting. And so their, their, constant, into, the, the, their constant insult um, that Job has, has sinned shows Job that even his closest friends, his best of friends, they can't be trusted. They're not here for me. The guys that I should be able to lean on can't. And just affirming that he's by himself. He's alone. He has no one. There are a couple of things that I just want to pause here and say just really quickly. One of the most obvious applications, I think, that we could draw from Job's friends is um, to not be like Job's friends, okay? Um, right? That's the most, and I think this one is particularly, you know, applicable for, for us, you know, who are in middle and high school years and even into our early, our, our young adult lives, right? Uh, sometimes we, we have, an, you, know, you know, the person that we really don't like, you know, they, they finally hit a rough patch in life, and man, that makes me feel good. You know, oh, I, they deserve that one. No, that's not, that's not godly. Right? Even, even the people that we don't like as much, when they uh, wreck themselves on some sort of season of suffering, how wonderful of a time is it, is it to, to show the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and to just come alongside them and wrap your arms around and say, hey, I'm here for you. I love you. Right, so first just obvious application, don't be like Job's friends. Second one, there may and there probably is going to come a time in your life and perhaps maybe some of you are in this season now when you feel like Job. Maybe the circumstances aren't quite so bad but you do feel like you have come to the end of yourself. You feel like uh, you've been forsaken by the people that should love you. You feel lonely. You feel like you've got nobody. You have been left kind of on your own by the people who are supposed to love you and just be with you through your mess, whatever that is. Some of you may perhaps be there today or tomorrow, or maybe you've been there yesterday. Let me just comfort you by saying that, that everyone else on the face of this earth may forsake you and leave you alone to suffer by yourself. But the Lord Jesus Christ himself will never do that. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ is a contrast, complete contrast to the friends that are sitting alongside Job at this point in time. The Lord Jesus 
is, is never one to, to bludgeon his people uh, with his words. He, he's not one to, to kick us while we're down in our suffering. He's, he's, he never guesses, right? He, he always knows the truth, so he can't assert some untruthful narrative on our lives. He, he knows if we've sinned and he knows if we've not. And even if we have sinned and our sin has caused our suffering, he's not one to run away and to, to desert us and say, you know what, I've had enough of you, I'm done. It's not who he is. He remains with his people, even through their messiness, even through their sin, even through their yuckiness. Not only that, but he's always willing to listen. What does Jesus tell us to do when we're in distress? Just come, come talk to me. I'll listen. I'll comfort you. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ is, is a friend who, who loves us who loves his people and he even he even calls us his friends in john chapter 15 verses 13 to 15 he says greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends you are my friends if you do what i command you no longer do i call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing but i have called you friends for all that i have heard from my father I have made known to you. Christ is the kind of friend who says, you know what, that one over there that sins against me every day, right? that one over there that, that just continues to disobey me and to, to not come to me and to not follow me, you know what, they believe me, I'm going to lay my life down for them. Jesus laid down his life for sinners. He laid down his life for his friends. And so no, no matter what the circumstance, if all of our friends turn, in, turn into to Job's friends, we still have, have one friend that we can count on, and his name is Jesus. Which brings us to the, to the next part of our passage and brings us kind of further into Job's circumstances, really pretty terrible circumstances, as you kind of heard in the reading. And, and verses 7 to 22 kind of divide up somewhat nicely. In verses 7 to 12, Job recounts how to, to his circum, you know, according to his circumstances, it appears as if God has treated him as his enemy. And in verses 13 to 22, Job recounts how, how everyone else has deserted him, not just his three friends. So verse 7 uh, he, he describes how God, since the very beginning, since his suffering began, God has been silent throughout the whole thing. Job cries out for God. God does not respond. Job, uh, God responds neither, neither audibly nor by way of action. God has, has not really come to the help of Job, come to Job's rescue thus far. And then in verse 8, he goes on to say that God is against him. Right? He's walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths instead of light. Verses 9 to 10, he's taken away all my blessings. Verses 11 to 12, he states it plainly. From his perspective, according to what he can see with his eyes, according to his visuals, it looks like God is against him and that he is God's adversary and that God has set up his army against Job. So from Job's perspective, according to his circumstances, the things that he can see and the things that he feels, 
He feels as if he's moved from being God's friend to God's foe. Right? He, he's, it looks like he's moved from being God's ally to God's adversary. He's moved from being God's most revered to God's most rivaled. He feels like he's now God's enemy. He feels as if he's been disowned and, and cast away. And not only does he feel like that from God, but he feels like that from everyone else around him in his life. One of the commentators points out kind of both the scope and uh, the scope of the people and the scope of desertion that he's felt so far. He says he, he, that Job has been astrayed by his, by his relatives, by his close friends, by his wife, by his brothers, by his intimate friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, along with his household servants, former household guests, and children. In other words, pretty much every person that he's ever known runs away from him. And then the text also uses sort of synonyms for their estrangement to drive home its severity. They have failed him. They have forgotten him. They are repulsed by him. They will not help him. They despise him. They abhor him. And they gossip against him. It's not a good season of life for Job. Job's alone. And like we said earlier, not only does he have the pain, remember, not only does he have the pain of his physical body in loathsome sores, but he also has the pain of losing all of his children and all of his possessions. And then this, he's been estranged and abandoned by everyone that he's ever known. And it also feels like God has abandoned him. It feels, according to Job, like he is dying alone. And so he begs his friends. He begs his friends in verses 21 22. Have mercy on me. Can't you see how I'm suffering? Have mercy on me. And sadly, even after chapter 19, Job's friends continue to do the same thing that they've been doing up to this point in the book. And so from Job's perspective, it feels as if Every bit of life around him has crumbled to the ground and disintegrated. It feels like God hates him. It feels like everyone else in his life hates him. So, so, so there follows, right? If, if Job sees, uh, if it feels like or if, if he's experiencing from his sense of sight and from his emotions and from what he feels, right? If he feels like he's been abandoned, if, he's, if he feels like God has left him, if he feels like he's God's enemy now, then that must be the case, right? If it feels that way and if it looks that way. No. That's not the case. The reality of the Christian life is, is that though there may be seasons where it feels and looks like God has abandoned us and that he hates us and that he's disowned us. That is absolutely not the case in Christ Jesus. In other words, we have instruments. We have instruments in the cockpit to tell us. No, he, he's, he's still there. He's still my God. I am, I am still one of his people. I'm still beloved 
by him in Christ Jesus. From our perspectives, as we read the book of Job on this side of the cross, we can say that there's nothing that will separate God from his people. One of the wonderful facts about the book of Job is that God says that, that, that Job is one of his beloved children. He's one of his servants, again, in chapters 1 and 2. And though Job feels like God has deserted him, and though it looks like God has deserted him throughout the middle of the book, Job is still as much loved by God as he was in chapter 1, in chapter 19, and in chapter 20, and in chapter 39, and 40, and 41, and 42. God's love for Job never wavers even one bit throughout the entire book. Though Job feels, though it looks like to Job, it has changed. So even though in our lives, in our, in our own experience of the providence of God, in our own experience of, of suffering, though it may look like God is against us and he hates us and our, our circumstances, right, everything that's happening around us tend, tend to just back that reality up, we can know for sure that that is not true. Again, as Christians, this side of the cross, we can look back to the cross and say, there's, there's nothing, there, there is absolutely nothing that can separate me from the love of Christ. He has not abandoned me now, nor will he ever abandon me. I'm already bought. I'm already paid for. He's already paid the price. Why would he, why would he leave me now? And though Job didn't have the benefit of, of the cross of Christ to look back upon for his assurance, Job still has his relationship with God and everything that's happened up to that point in his life to look back and say that God is faithful. And that's exactly what he does towards the end of the chapter in verses 23 to 29. And since, and since chapter 3 in the book, Job ha- has been pretty hopeless. If you read Job, he, 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 he's not a happy person, of course, and he shouldn't be. It's a terrible, he's experienced a, ter- a terrible season of life. And he expresses that in Job chapter 19, verse 10, here in our passage. He says, my hope has been pulled up like a tree. He's been uprooted. But yet, at the end of the chapter, hope resurfaces for a moment. In verses 23 to 24, Job's hope resurfaces for a moment, and and he remains confident, right, in his innocence, or at least his innocence that that uh, or his his innocence before his suffering. He he remains confident in the fact that it is not his sin that has caused his suffering; it's something else. And so he writes, "Oh, that my words were written! Oh, that they were inscribed in a book! Oh, that they were! Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved on a rock forever." In other words, he wants his, his life's account to be preserved forever. And, and his prayer was answered, right? We have, we have the book of Job here in front of us. But not only does, it, does he wish for his, his life to be recorded so that maybe perhaps later he could get a more fairer judgment, not only does he wish for his life to be recorded and his, his deeds 
to be judged at a later point, but, but he goes on in verses 25 to 27, probably the most popular verses of the entire book. And it's here where we come to the main point of the entire chapter. And so let's look at those verses carefully. Verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. In verse 25, Job states that he knows, in other words, he has certainty that his Redeemer, his Redeemer lives. And and you ask the question, what does that word Redeemer mean? Who is that? What is that? What's he talking about? Um, So the Hebrew word for Redeemer is used a lot of times in the Old Testament, and sometimes uh, it's used to refer to human beings, like a kinsman Redeemer, uh, like like Boaz was to Naomi in the book of Ruth. Someone, this is the, the, the person that you have at the top of your favorites list on your iPhone, right? This is the person that you call when you're in a bind. This is the person who's going to come rescue you when you have no one else. And so Job is saying, I know that my Redeemer lives, but he's not talking about another human being. He's not talking about one of his friends. He's not talking about one of his brothers. He's not talking about someone in his family. Because the, the same word, Redeemer, is used a number of time, times in the Old Testament also to refer to God, even as it was, I believe, in uh, Psalm chapter 19 that we read just a moment ago. So in this instance, when, Job, when everyone else around Job, he knows they've deserted him and he knows that he's alone. He, he knows that he has no one else. He, he, he's referring to God. Namely because God's the only person that's left. There's, there's not a person who's going to come stand in his place. There's not uh, someone else who's going to come to his rescue. And so Job says, I, I know my Redeemer lives. And he goes on, and he says, At last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. What does Job mean? It means that he trusts that God is going to one day judge rightly, even as our brother prayed Psalm 58 a moment ago. Job, even amidst all of this seemingly unjust things that have happened to him, he trusts that his, his Redeemer is going to come one day and judge justly. He trusts in the justice of God. Commentators go back and forth whether Job is talking about whether he's going to see God, his Redeemer, stand in this very place uh, in, in, in his, his, this time before he dies, or whether he's going to, to see the Lord God Almighty stand in this place uh, in the resurrection life. And, and commentators go back and forth either, either way. But, but Job is talking about the fact that he is going to be vindicated. In other words, things are going to be made right. God is going to set things right. God is going to vindicate him. 
Which means, as he says later in verses 28 to 29, if God judges justly, and if I am vindicated, then you, friends, better watch out, right? He says uh, in verses 28 to 29, how he will pursue them, and the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, friends, for the wrath of for the wrath brings punishment of the sword that you may know that there is a judge. In other words, friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, repent or you too are going to be judged, which is actually played out later in the book. To put it very simply, Job sees through, in these last few verses in the chapter, sees through the mess of his life and yet still trusts that God is going to vindicate him. In other words, that God is just. In other words, uh, to put it succinctly, Job has a trust that transcends his trauma. Job has a, a trust in God that transcends what his friends are telling him and what he feels like his circumstances are telling him. He has a trust in God that transcends what he can see with his eyes. And, and to put it, uh, to use the opening illustration again, Job is flying through life IFR. In other words, he's saying, everything else in my life looks like it's crumbling down, yet I still trust in God and know that he loves me and know that he's going to vindicate, justify me one day. And I'm here to tell you that the same is true for us. That if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, again, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Though our, our present circumstances, though what we feel, though our friends may desert us, we can trust that that God is good and that he is just that he will take care of us that he will never leave that he will never forsake us and that's the kind of God that we have a trust that transcends any kind of trauma that the world can throw at us so we too with Job can say in, in whatever season of life my Redeemer lives. My Redeemer lives. Brothers and sisters, Christ Jesus today is holding out Himself as a, as a trustworthy person. Someone who we can stake our lives upon. And so I would urge you, if you haven't considered the Lord Jesus, or maybe you have, I would urge you to reconsider Him. Right? To, to consider him as one who, who will never leave nor forsake his people. One who is always faithful to those whom he loves. One who will always stand with us in whatever kind of circumstances that life brings. That's the kind of friend Jesus is. That's the kind of faithful friend that Jesus is. I think the last verse of what a friend we have in Jesus sums Job 19 up really well. The last verse of that hymn says, Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends 
despise, forsake thee. Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find solace there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we are your people and that you are our God. And we thank you for sacrificing your son on our behalf and for being faithful when we are faithless, for being trustworthy when we fail to trust. We thank you for all these things and pray now that you would bless our hearts in the singing of your praise. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.